Well, good morning. We're really glad you're joining us today, and um, it's amazing that we can do this. Um, we know we're, many of us have reached that point where um, we've got cabin fever and we're a little stir-crazy with, um, with being uh, in our homes and, and sort of uh, doing all the things we've been asked to do to stay quarantined. But thank you for, uh, for doing those things. Thanks for being conscientious about your neighbors and, and how to help, help them and protect them. Um, it's amazing, though, that we can still gather like this. Um, but one of the unique things with this as well, and this is a, a reminder of some things that JR shared at the beginning of the service, that, that in our series now we're reaching a point where we're going to be dealing with some topics that may be sensitive for some younger folks um, here in these chapters in Second Samuel. And so we just want to remind you that, um, that if you've got uh, kids in the room, uh, you may want to make a, a choice to pause at this point and, and allow them to do something else while we, we talk through this story uh, today in Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Um, to begin, I was going to ask a question. Uh, ha- have you ever been sort of caught in a situation that, that got spiraling out of control? Um, kind of like maybe this one on, that, that took place a, a little over 100 years ago on January 15, 1919. Um, when 2.3 million gallons of molasses erupted in Boston, just near the harbor. It's known as the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Um, And if it weren't so devastating, it would actually be kind of funny because the idea of molasses creating what people called um, a half-mile swath of crushed buildings uh, would, would be a humorous sight. We don't think of molasses as being all that fast. Um, in fact, as slow as molasses is kind of a common statement. But in this case, that molasses, those 2.3 million gallons of molasses, broke free and ran through the streets at 35 miles per hour. People were swept up in it. It pushed train cars off of the, the tracks and into to buildings. People were buried underground. It, it, was, it happened so quickly that, it, that the molasses rushed down the street, and before anyone knew it, it was actually into Boston Harbor. It left 21 people dead and 150 people injured, and literally no one saw it coming. It, it immediately um, caught everyone by surprise. Years after that, in the years after that, there were lawsuits and there was um, blame was, was assigned. But, but the trial to determine whether or not the company that, that had the molasses vat that exploded, the trial actually lasted five years. Um, there, were, there were over 1,500 defense exhibits. And, and just the closing arguments took 11 weeks to give. But finally, in 1925, uh, six years after uh, the, the molasses flood, it was found that, um, that the company uh, that, that, that had the, the vat, uh, it was their vat that exploded, it was found that, that they were negligent and they paid damages. And it was found that, that they had rushed the construction process, that, that the, the creaking and the groaning that had been happening for years, they were aware of it and hadn't taken the necessary steps to repair it. They'd been using just simple caulk to try and seal up, up um, large cracks that were in the, the infrastructure. And, and the day that it exploded, it was deemed that, that it could have been avoided, that if, if people had, had paid closer attention, been more diligent, that this could have been avoided. And today... 
we're going to talk about a few, um, an, a story in the scriptures that's really similar. Um, and we're going to talk about a story that's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David finds himself, King David finds himself caught up in a similar story. It's a tough story. It's a story that involves some really difficult things. It involves um, pain that, that is inflicted by David and the abuse of power. Um, David, but, but it also involves something I think that's similar or, or that, that's common for all of us. And, and that is that, that we oftentimes get caught up where small things turn into big things, where, where, cr- where just small cracks in the vat become really big issues in our life. And that's what happens here to David. And so we're going to take a look at this, and we've been using this, this um, just time frame to try and anchor ourselves in the story. But we're now uh, in a portion of the story where David's reign as king is well established. He's been the king for some time. Um, his, there's no questions about his authority. His enemies have largely been subdued. Um, there are still wars, and there are still um, battles to be fought. But David is, is pretty removed from that, as we're going to see in the story. And we pick this up in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So I'll, it'll be on the screen for you, but if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. There's a lot that happens in these first four verses. And the things that happen in these first four verses set in motion everything that's going to happen in the rest of this chapter. But it's clear to set the stage that David, there's this this key phrase, this key phrase at the end of verse 1. It was the time when kings went out to war, and then there's this phrase that says, but David remained in Jerusalem. It's a big but in the Bible. David remained in Jerusalem. Apparently, he was, he was sleepless. In the evening, he gets up out of his bed. He either, he'd either slept all day or he was attempting to sleep and was up from his sleep. And, and as he's on the roof of his house, he sees this beautiful woman. <clears throat> he's told that the woman is the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and that's no small detail either. Uriah the Hittite was a man that's mentioned in other places of Scripture. He's actually mentioned as, as one of David's mighty men. David's mighty men, was a, it was a group of warriors who followed David, who fought alongside David and protected David. When he, it began when he was on the run from Saul, and it carried over to, from the time he was king. They became commanders in his army. And Uriah the Hittite is unique. It tells us he's a Hittite, meaning that he wasn't, he wasn't a naturally born Jew. He had actually converted to Judaism and become a Jew in, and through the process of becoming one of David's mighty men, through defending David. The point of that is this. Uriah the Hittite was no stranger to David. Uriah was someone that David was close to. And when David sees this woman and he wants her for himself and he's told this is Uriah's wife, 
He knew what that meant. He knew who that was. But David takes her. He takes her into the, into the palace. And wow, what a context, right? And context is everything. You see, what David did was he, he took Bathsheba for himself. And, and there's a lot of things that we don't know here. We don't get this story from the perspective of Bathsheba. We only get Bathsheba as, as a, an element in the story that from David's perspective. But, but in this culture and at this point in time, it's important that we understand that Bathsheba was powerless. She was powerless. This essentially boils down to, to, to what we may even call sexual assault, that she, had, she didn't have an option to say no. And so, so Bathsheba is taken into, da- into the palace, and, and David sleeps with her. Um, this is, this is a, a dehumanizing thing for her. This is David taking away her agency and her voice. And, and this is significant. This is no small matter. It, it feels like it could be ripped from today's headlines. Of course, in that day and age, they didn't see it the same way we do. But, but, but it's still every bit as wrong then as it was now. What David did was wrong. Keep reading verse 5. And it says, The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. This is shocking on many levels, even given the timing. If she was purifying herself from her uncleanness, even in the process just of, of the natural cycle, this would have been a time where pregnancy would have been unlikely. But she's pregnant in verse 5. Verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab. Joab was the commander of his army, mentioned earlier. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So in the face of an unexpected pregnancy, David brings the woman's husband back to, to Jerusalem. He brings the woman's husband back, and, and, and he he tries to persuade him to go home and wash his feet, which, as we clearly understand, is a euphemism for going home and, and, and being with his wife for, for sexual intimacy. But Uriah wouldn't do it. Now, contrast here. Contrast Uriah with David. David, who at the, in this story, at this point in time, is driven completely by his senses. His, this sens- sensual desire is, is controlling him. Uriah, on the other hand, won't give in to his, his sensual desire. He, even within the boundaries of his marriage, he won't go home. David wouldn't go to battle, and Uriah wouldn't go home from the battle. And it's a stark contrast between these two men. Keep reading verse 10. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? You see, he understood what washing his feet meant. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. 
he did not go home. You see, David even says to Uriah, he sort of asks this question. If we could paraphrase what David says to him, he says, Uriah, you've been out fighting. Now that you're home, why won't you just go to your home and do what comes naturally? Why won't you just give in to your senses? Why won't you just do this thing? Even when he's drunk, inebriated, Uriah wouldn't go home. His, his loyalty to the mission his, and his faithfulness to the cause of the, the nation of Israel was still staunch. So again, while David is home indulging himself, Uriah refuses to do the same. Verse 14 says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Did you catch that? He wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and sent the letter with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, in it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Wow, what, what a calculated What a calculated measure by David. He writes a death warrant for Uriah and hands it to Uriah to take back to Joab. And again, the contrast, Uriah carries that message to Joab clearly without opening it. Clearly, he was faithful to the cause. But what we're beginning to see is not only was David driven by his sensual desire, but the great lengths that David was willing to go to in order to cover up. And we begin to see the corrosive power of of the sin manifesting itself in David. You see, throughout these stories, throughout this, this, this collection of stories, historical stories, things that re, with real people in real places and real times, we've seen an awful lot from David, and we've seen an awful lot of good things. And it would be easy to put David in the category of being a hero. But here we find that even the most heroic person, the most heroic person we, we have in, in, in all of these accounts, that he's so flawed that he actually sends Uriah to his death. He actually sends out a military campaign to be intentionally unsuccessful just to have Uriah killed. You see, David, while... He did many things to honor God. While he had many qualities that were virtuous, while there's much in David for us to look at and to say yes, he said yes to God in these ways, the real hero of the story still isn't David. David in this story becomes the anti-hero. But keep looking. Verse 18. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger... When you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? That sounds fascinating, but we don't know much about it. Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And here we see Joab's complicity. Now, we haven't looked much at the the person of Joab, though he shows up uh, throughout the story. 
But Joab was a calculating uh, military man. He was the commander of David's army, and he, he took that spot by actually taking the life of a, of a competitor early on in David's reign. He takes the life of someone that David had said shouldn't be killed. And instead of punishing him for that or removing him from it, David stays silent on it. And what we see developing between these two men is, a, is kind of a tacit understanding or a complicity in these actions that, that there were certain things that just needed to be done in order to, to maintain power or certain things that needed to be done in order to consolidate that power. And Joab was the kind of man who got those things done. And we have, we have an, an account of it here, and we'll see him again before we're finished with, with these, these accounts in First and Second Samuel. But, but Joab becomes complicit in David's sin. He empowers David to do it. Essentially, he was not just a yes man, but he was also an ax man. Like, he was someone who would carry out the wishes of the king without question. And that's going to be important as we move through the rest of this. Take a look at verse 22. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent, sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. We see here just the depths that David's willing to go to cover up his, his sin, to cover up this thing that he'd done that, that is shameful, that is wrong. And his words here are just powerful and gut-wrenching. The justification that he uses to say with Joab to say that the sword devours one as well as another. Essentially what he says is that Uriah's life is meaningless. In battles, men die all the time. Why not just swap Uriah's life for the life of someone else? In the last line there, too, it almost comes in as an afterthought, right? But there, a child is born. David brings Bathsheba into his house. The child is born, and it's a son. And then there's this very last phrase in chapter 11, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's stated as an afterthought, but the fact of the matter is, for a season here, David apparently had gotten away with what he had done. For a season, David had had taken someone to be his own that wasn't his. He'd enlisted the help of others to, to do this. It was nothing less than a conspiracy at this point. And then he had that woman's husband killed so that he could cover up his sin. The cover-up continues as, as Uriah's dead and she comes in the home and it's made to look either like Uriah when he was home, it was the father of the child, or the child, David was the father of the child after Bathsheba came to be his wife in his home. But it's, it's a terrible story. There's no sugarcoating it or whitewashing it. It is an awful thing that David did. It's so extreme, it, 
it seems like headlines rip directly from the things, kinds of things we see today. If, if this was an account of Jeffrey Epstein or Harvey Weinstein, we wouldn't even, we, we would say, of course, that's what it seems like. But, but the thing that's fascinating here is that, that we're not talking about, about someone in our modern day who, who is, is living in, in the lap of luxury. We're talking about someone who was God's man. He was God's chosen man. The, the scriptures speak glowingly about him. He's an author of the Psalms. He's someone who had, who had undergone such significant testing by God. And we have to ask ourselves a question. And the question is this. Do you believe that you're capable of sin like David's? It's a fair question. The situation with David seems so extreme. It seems so far from what we would say is reasonable or rational. It seems so distant from anything that we would say is, is just decent. But remember who David was. He was God's man, handpicked by God to lead the nation of Israel. And yet, this story, it happened it took place. This was in David. He was, he was capable of it. And if he's capable of it, we have to be honest with ourselves when we ask ourselves the question, are we capable of it? And to ask it, we need to look at some contributing factors. To answer it, I'm sorry, we need to look at some contributing factors. What are the things that were true for David that that led to this, that brought this about, the things that you and I could look at our lives and say, is it possible? Is it possible that I could do something like this? And so there's really two things that we want to see. And the first is this, that in this story, when we pick the story up here in, in, in chapter 11, David was isolated and he was free from accountability. This is the David that we find. He's isolated. He's home when he should be at work or at war. He's alone when he should have others around him. He's wandering the rooftops when he should be with his men at battle, leading them. He's isolated. He's free from accountability. He'd been, he had been given the blessing of God to be the king, to have the position, to have the authority, to have the power. And this is where we find him. He had power. But what he didn't have was, at this point, was accountability. He had people like Joab in his life that, were, that would tell him yes. He clearly had people in the palace who, who, who wouldn't say no to him. And it, it empowered David. It, it, it gave him the, the opportunity to carry out this act. And I would tell us at this point to be careful with what we consider to be God's blessing. Be careful. We, it's, it's fair to ask ourselves these questions like, God, why, why have you made things so difficult for me? Why haven't you made my life easier? Why haven't you granted me um, peace or comfort or, or security? And it's, I don't know what, what we would do. I certainly don't know what I would do with those kinds of things, but I do know this. I do know that when David had those things, this is what we find of him. The second contributing factor is this, that the cracks in David's obedience, or we could say his disobedience, were already present. Just like the, the, 
great molasses flood and the vat of 2.3 million gallons of molasses, the cracks that caused the explosion were already there well before the actual explosion. The same things were true for David. Yes, he had a long history of radical faith and obedience. But in David's life, women were already an area of weakness. He already had multiple wives at this point. He had already taken Saul's harem in as his own women for pleasure. He was already objectifying women in that way. That crack was already present. His actions indicate that there's privilege, there's self-indulgence, that he felt that he was beyond the need to be present with his men in battle, that it was okay for him to stop and to relax. Maybe we even see in David that I've done the hard work. I've fought the battles. It's time for someone else to do that. I'm going to, for lack of a better term, I'm going to just sort of retire. I'm going to take it easy. The cracks in David's obedience were already present. If we trace this thing backwards, it didn't start when David justified the disobedience by saying that the sword devours one as easily as another. That justification wasn't the first thing. It was the last. It didn't start even when he sent Uriah's death warrant with Uriah back to the the battlefield. It didn't start when when he tried to bring Uriah home to cover it up. It didn't start when he had Bathsheba in the palace. It started when he was taking it easy. It started when he was isolated. At that point in time, the the fuse was lit and the explosion was inevitable. And you see, that's where when you and I look at this situation, we better be very careful with our answer to that question. Do we believe that we're capable of this same sort of thing? Perhaps the only thing that's missing is that, that we don't have the opportunity Perhaps the only thing that's different is that we don't have a palace and the power that it takes to bring someone and to objectify them that way. Perhaps if we looked in our own lives, we'd find the same cracks that we see in David's life. We'd find the same patterns of of objectifying other people. You see, disobedience in David and and in all of us, it's always a lack of faith. It always betrays our words and saying that we believe that God and his ways are best and good. And the greatest attacks on our faith are these lies that we begin to believe. They're these lies that we begin to believe that it's, it's clear that David was believing in this story, in this account. And so I want to say this morning as we, as we begin to look at what this has to do, what this means for all of us, I want to address these lies Because lies originate, they originate with Satan. John chapter 8 tells us that Satan is the father of lies. When he he lies, he's speaking his native language. And when we buy into those lies, we're speaking the devil's language that lies originate with Satan. Lies present themselves as appealing. There's something about these lies that causes us to, to want to believe them, to want them to be true. They they somehow entice us into into accepting them as the truth, even in in the face of evidence to the contrary. And so lies have got to be called out. We have to call out the lies. 
And, and in this account, we're going to look at the lies that, that it seemed like David was saying in this story that, that we, I'm sure that we hear as well. And, and the first is this. The first lie is that this isn't hurting anyone. It's one of the most dangerous lies we tell ourselves. It's, it's, it's sort of a cousin of the, of the lie that says all that matters is right now that maybe tomorrow's price is tomorrow's price, but I'm gonna take what I can get today. But, but we, we often say, this isn't really hurting anyone. It's just me. It's just my life. And, and, and David, even that justification that he uses, that the sword devours one as well as another, it's just a version of that lie that, that look, in the way of the world, people are going to die. What's the difference between Uriah's death and another soldier's death? This isn't really hurting anyone, but what a lie. And look at the damage that lies like that do. Before David had Uriah killed, he'd already objectified Bathsheba and betrayed Uriah. They were already victims of his. But in, along the way, he also made Joab complicit. Along the way, he also made the servants in his household complicit in this. Along the way, there were other soldiers who died because David employed a known failed military tactic that caused innocent soldiers to die simply so that Uriah could be put to death. It does hurt others. And in the next chapter, in chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he confronts him about this sin. And we'll see a little bit more about this next week even. But but he comes to him, and look at what he says here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse, verse 13, four, verses 13 and 14. He says this, David said to Nathan, David is confronted with his sin, and, and David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Do we see this? You see, David wanted to believe that his sin was only going to impact him, that he was going to be able to keep the circle tight, that it was, it was, he could draw that circle in the ground and stand it and say, it's only the people in this circle who are going to be hurt by my sin. But we find out that in the actual world of real consequences, not only is it someone else who's hurt, but it's an innocent child. Now, Please hang with us for next week. We're going to talk about that in light of God's son being a sacrifice for sin. By God, but, but, but by this happening, David has to deal with the fact that his, his sin, his lie, that this isn't hurting anyone, it was hurting so many people. And we've got to confront that lie in our own lives. The second lie that we need to confront is this. It's if I can do this, then it must be okay. I think we hear this lie in our heads all the time. We've got to confront this lie, that if I can do something, it's got to be okay. Because we get back to this idea of why doesn't God just give me what I want? If, if I had what I want, if I had more comfort, more security, more power, then things would be better. But there seems to be something corrosive about having that power. Remember, David was a man after God's own heart. David was someone that, the, that, that wrote songs and psalms to the Lord for the people to sing. David was God's chosen man. And yet, when he had the power, when he had the opportunity to do this, he wasn't able to say no to it. We say somewhat flippantly that power corrupts. Is it any wonder then 
that, that God would withhold this kind of, those, that kind of power from us, that he would withhold comfort and security from us. Because isn't it possible that we would be people who would say, if I can do it, it's justified, it's okay. And the last lie that we see here, the third big lie that I think we need to confront is this. I can keep this under control. I can contain it. I can manage it. We tell ourselves that we can, we can keep it under wraps. But see, see, sin doesn't play by our rules and it doesn't recognize our boundaries. We try to get it in a lane and keep it moving down the highway and stay within those lines, but it's always darting left and right. Sin doesn't stay within the containers that we try to put it in. You see, looking again at the next chapter, you see what else happens. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, not only was David's son going to die, that was born from this relationship with Bathsheba. But when we look back kind of midway through verse 9 in chapter 12, the next chapter, this is what Nathan says to David. He says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. You see, David wanted to try and contain this. He wanted to put it, put it under his own control. But the fact of the matter is what Nathan is telling him is that the results of this, the consequences of this are going to be real, they're going to be harsh, and they're going to be public. All of the covering up that David tried to do in order to maintain his, his position or to, to save face or to avoid the shame of what he had done, all of those efforts to contain were going to blow up on him. And the, the cracks that were already there and present were, were, were going to explode into his life. And that's the story of what happens. We'll see it in coming weeks. David's children begin to fight with each other the sins of David's life begin to manifest themselves when, when children from one of his wives begin battling and warring with others. The, the, when his son Absalom takes David's concubines, the harem that he had inherited from Saul and I'm sure added to over the years, and Absalom takes them on the roof of the palace and in, and in broad daylight, he, he continues the pattern of his father objectifying women. And he does it in broad daylight before the people of Israel as a sign of his power. It's a terrible chain of events that's begun. But, but the lie that we can somehow contain it, that we can keep it under wraps, that we can put a lid on it, it's a lie that we must confront. We have to confront these lies in our life. And is there anything more timely than this, this passage that talks to us about, about having free time, about, about being kind of isolated, about being on our own? Is there ever a time to be reminded that the effort that it takes for us to connect with one another, to be accountable to one another, that that effort is absolutely essential? We've got to confront these lies. We may not be kings and queens. We may not have crowns and thrones. We may not be able to force other people to bend to our will the way that David could. But we certainly can manipulate others to try and gain allies in our own little power plays in life.
to go to someone to try and speak to them in a way that's going to bring them around to our side of an argument. How recently have you done that? How recently have have you hidden a purchase from someone? You didn't want them to know about it. It could be big, it could be small, but it's hidden because we want to cover it up. We don't want anyone, we don't have to deal with the shame of having made the purchase or done it. How often, how recently have you cleared your browser history? How often have you lingered in a relationship that wasn't healthy, that was drawing you away from a spouse and not said a word about it? When's the last time we let someone take the blame for our mistake, someone else take the blame for our mistake? Because we were looking to move forward. When's the last time we engineered a situation to gain a promotion or a compliment or the attention of people around us? You see, each of these things, in each of these things, we participate in the root cause of David's disobedience. David's disobedience, the root cause was that he looked at these people as objects, not as image bearers of God. And and while, again, we may not be kings and queens who can bring other people into our palace and force them to to meet our desires, I I believe that that we do objectify them in the same way that David was. I believe the same cracks in David's life are present in mine. And we have to confront those cracks and the lies that that produce them. And now's the time. Would you pray? Lord, we come to you today and confess that um, that our hearts and our motives are are mixed at best. And God, we know that um, we know that you've you've laid out a path. You've you've given us a, a, a walk of faith. And God, we ask today that, um, that we would confront the lies, the things that we, that we tell ourselves or that we, that we hear in, in the world and, and, and we make them our own, that we would, we would address them, that we would, we would bring them into the light. We pray that we would recognize them for what they are and we would combat them with your truth. God, we pray for those who, who at this point in time in particular are struggling with with needs and unmet desires perhaps even amplified or brought on by the the current situation and we ask that 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 you would provide strength to those where the, the strength is weak that you would you would give them the eyes to see god that you would do the same for us we know that that each of us is just one bad decision away from heading down similar paths as David, would you, would you help us? Would you protect us? And God, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.